Just a word from our sponsor, Anchor FM, the organization that is hosting this platform here. Anchor FM is a free podcasting platform, and there are all sorts of creation tools that you can use. They'll distribute your podcast for you. There's a way for you to contribute. So, therefore, if you are a podcaster, your listeners can make a contribution, just as I might encourage you to. So there's everything you need to make a great podcast. Get going with it. Download it at Anchor FM, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Hello, for Physician Interrupted, I'm Dr. Kernan Mannion. I am delighted to have you join us, and I'm also especially delighted to have our guest, Dr. Michael Langan, who is the chief architect of DisruptedPhysician.com. That's DisruptedPhysician.com. Welcome, Michael. Hello, Kernan. How are you today? I'm doing well. Great to have you with us here. Great. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. Could you say a little bit uh, for our group about how you came to be in this area, what your background is as an internist? Well, I uh, wanted to become a geriatrician since I was a, a child, and I uh, did my uh, fellowship at uh, Harvard Medical School and then spent 15 years at, at Mass General as a, a staff physician in geriatric medicine. Primarily, I'm focusing on uh, the problems with the current system yep. and advocating for, uh, for change. So uh, for our listeners, uh, Michael is a very intrinsic part of CPR, the Center for Physician Rights. And one of the areas of deep interest and deep knowledge that Michael has is that of the drug testing aspect of PHPs, amongst many others. I mean, Michael is perhaps the foremost historian of understanding the PHP movement, that is the physician health program movement. Now, as we've spoken about in earlier podcasts, we introduced this concept of the MRTC, which is the Medical Regulatory Therapeutic Complex. And this is an entity that really has control over physicians' licenses. And one aspect of that is the PHP component. And one of the things that we've seen happening is that physicians get referred either by the board, the medical board, which is really not a referral, it's a mandate, or by their employer or through some other mechanism, and they end up having to go to a PHP, a physician health program. And then what happens is that the PHP then says, we need to do some sort of drug testing on you. Now, this appointment may occur weeks after the original concern or referral has been made. What then happens is some testing takes place, and then as a result of that, a physician may be referred to further evaluation uh, at another facility. And as we have examined this, then we've seen that going down that pathway, a physician can get deeper and deeper into problems with regard to this entity, the medical regulatory therapeutic complex. And a lot of that referral is based upon erroneous drug testing. And so We're going to be focusing today on the issue of drug testing amongst the PHPs in the physician community and how they get 
referred down this funnel into a four-day evaluation and then further treatment, mandated treatment at an inpatient facility or a specialized, quote-unquote, impaired physician program facility. And then even subsequent to that, months or years of monitoring. So, Michael, in terms then of thinking about this issue of drug testing, before we even go into the physician community, I think it'd be really helpful to understand What's the normal course of events when somebody is, say, suspected of having some sort of impairment due to substances? Well, the uh, usual conceptual framework is to uh, uh, gather as much data as possible immediately to determine if that uh, individual is impaired. Mm -hmm. And uh, the standard approach to that, uh, say, for example, alcohol, is you would want to get an immediate uh, breathalyzer followed by a uh, alcohol blood test and possibly urine to determine if the uh, person was in fact impaired. So and that goes they, on. That goes on generally in industries like, let's say, the transportation industry. Yes, and it follows a, a very strict formal protocol involving uh, chain of custody procedures, uh-huh. validated testing, and well set, well researched, uh-huh. evidence based cutoff levels, uh-huh. and an understanding of the. Uh, pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics involved, based on the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. is this person impaired? Based on these tests, you would come to a clinical decision on what the next step would be. Okay, uh, so then let's take, for example, in the transportation industry, if I recall correctly, you had some experience as uh, serving actually as a medical review officer at a transportation uh, industry. Yes, yes. I was also involved in the uh, Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee at uh, at Massachusetts General Hospital. Ah, okay, um, right. and had some experience with the uh, the chief of toxicology and uh, and others in evaluating uh, tests for drugs of abuse. Okay, so let's go back then to the uh, transportation industry. So you were, I think, the medical review officer for what was the, it? The, the MBTA. The, uh, uh, the MBTA. So that is what the. The Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, the are uh, the bus and subway. Uh, ah, okay, okay. So these are all this is, these are people who run the entire uh, transportation system uh, for the community: uh, subways, buses, etc. Exactly, and trains, uh, basically, and trains. Yeah, long long term trains. So therefore, then, when they have somebody, they're saying, "Whoa, wait a minute, we think you are impaired." What you're saying is that they then immediately pull the guy off of work. Uh, and say, we're going to get some testing. So you're going to get a breathalyzer. You're going to get a blood test for alcohol. You're going to get a urine test for alcohol and maybe even some other things like like metabolites of alcohol and other substances of abuse. And then immediately the medical review officer is going to look at this and examine this. And if a decision is made that the person's impaired, what then happens? Well, uh, the approach would be if if someone was accused of uh, being suspected of, of being under the influence, uh, they would come into the MBTA clinic uh, where I'd first give them a, a, an examination to determine if uh, there was any confusion or other signs of, of, of use or abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately do a breathalyzer test followed by a blood alcohol and also a urine tox screen. Okay. And based on the results of those tests, a decision would be made at that point on whether the uh, person needed further evaluation or uh, could be deemed uh, unimpaired. Or and if unimpaired, then they would be sent back to work? Immediately, yes. Okay. And, right. So uh, therefore, we don't find any evidence the accusation or concern was not validated, right? 
Correct. Okay. So then if that is the way that it occurs, how does it differ, let's say, in the PHP system for a physician? What happens when a physician is then referred for uh, some sort of evaluation under the suspicion of substance abuse? Well, in the MBTA, what, what uh, we're looking for is, is active impairment. Is the person on the job impaired at the time of when they were doing whatever they were doing and putting the public at risk? That requires consideration of the timing, of the validity of the test, um, and other aspects to differentiate it between uh, use. So if we're talking about alcohol, uh, you're looking at a, a time frame where if someone is impaired, time is critical because if you look at blood alcohol concentrations or breathalyzer results, there is a, a relationship between impairment and those uh, specific cutoff levels, points, and uh, um, their specific criteria as in the cutoff where you would make a decision based on that. Okay. So um, you're saying so, basically that just because somebody has a positive test... Right doesn't necessarily mean that they were impaired. So further thought. Exactly. Okay. And the problem with physician health programs and the tests that uh, they are using is uh, they're using, uh, the other thing is with federal drug testing and uh, occupational drug testing, uh, these are FDA approved established validity tests of known specificity and sensitivity Mm -hmm. uh, based on, on research, based on, uh, studies and based on uh, you know a, a whole body of of research involved in in evaluating those and establishing right. those cutoff levels. Right. Right. Um, the uh, PHPs are using uh, non FDA approved testing. Uh, these are laboratory developed tests that were introduced uh, to detect alcohol and subsequently other substances of abuse that have a time frame uh, that goes beyond uh, the window of impairment. For example, the ETG test, uh, they advertise it as the 80-hour uh, alcohol test. So wow. if someone were drinking on a Saturday night and came in Monday morning and was tested for a ETG, it would uh, still remain positive. But the uh, value of that test is put in question because it really doesn't mean anything in terms of impairment. Mm-hmm. All it means is that uh, somebody had consumed alcohol at some point. But so if, therefore, the test, the test is reflecting back on the breakdown of alcohol that occurs uh, on, on uh, over a period of time, and that test could still be positive for three, four, even a week maybe? 80 hours is what they uh, uh, estimate, but, it's, but uh, up to a week. But anything beyond uh, uh, 24 hours would reduce the uh, really the validity of what mm-hmm. uh, the the right. question is being asked. So then, even also, what I'm hearing you say is that even if you got a test that same day, just using the ETG, you're going to get a positive result. Obviously, because the person has just consumed alcohol, but the ETG is not necessarily indicative of any degree of impairment. It's just simply measuring that you have the presence of alcohol as a metabolite in your blood. Precisely. So therefore, what we're talking about here is not only is it not helpful days after to indicate whether or not there was impairment, it's even questionable whether or not it's valid in the present moment to indicate impairment. Correct. 
Right. So there are two different evaluations, two different mindsets to develop. So then say a little bit more about this idea of a laboratory developed test. I'm not familiar with that. Well, the laboratory developed test pathway was a, uh, a pathway that's intended to get tested, for example, with the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. In a, a case of a pandemic, you would not want to go through the prohibitive FDA approval, time-consuming uh, uh, process of getting that approved before getting it out. You want to get it out as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. The other uh, issue is rare diseases mm-hmm. that uh, the cost of FDA approval may not be uh, uh, an impot- It may be so rare that developing the test through the FDA approval process would not be cost effective for the person developing who okay. developed it. So the laboratory developed test pathway was developed as an alternative to FDA approval in situations such as that. So okay. a test for a rare disease could be developed um, without the uh, very expensive cost and a test that needs to come out in a timely manner uh, due to an emergency. So it has, you're saying it has, it bypasses the usual protocol of right. rigid testing of validation in terms of its more broad use, but the FDA is saying, okay, for a short period of time here, we're going to give you tentative approval as long as you can show that it has some relationship to what you're testing for, and we're going to kind of give you the benefit. Right, of and, for two, and for very good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, the reasoning behind it is, is valid, and, uh, and, um, and, that, and that's the sole purpose for uh, being able to do this. So what's so, the downside? What's the downside to having laboratory-developed tests? Uh, the, well, the FDA-approved test, sensitivity, specificity, cutoff levels, all of that has been worked out. This, putting a, a, a test on the market without knowing those can uh, you know, create a lot of problems because you don't know the actual value of the test. Its validity is not known. Its accuracy. So the, the, the uh, consequences of, of a positive test or a negative um, a test, false positives, false negatives, it's just not known. But in those two situations, the benefits may out, uh, weigh the risks. Right. But the uh, FDA approval process pretty much gives a lot of reassurance to what you're testing for is actually showing up on the test. It's being subjected to much more rigorous scientific investigation in terms right. of validity. Right. And, right. and also the, uh, the main idea of the test is that as a data point uh, in gathering relevant relevant information in identifying uh, uh what you're looking for right um so it, it's 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 one one data point to be used in the entire constellation of 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 evidence that you're looking at all of the relevant information okay so then what we are then uh concerned about here is that the laboratory developed test as uh, let's call it fast tracked by the FTC is not actively overseen by the FTC, so therefore it really doesn't have FTC approval. And so therefore, what you seem to be saying is that the cutoff levels, uh, the validity of testing what it's supposed to be testing for, and being specific for what it's being tested for, are not really confirmed, and therefore a false positive, if you will, can come forward, not indicating the condition for which it's being used. Is that right? Correct. And the consequences of that are are, uh, unknown. And, uh, you know, in making any of the analytical treatment decisions sequentially, every step of the decision-making process is based on your perceived value 
and probability of of that that test is showing what uh, it's actually purported to be testing for. So you're saying then, so let's look at this here more closely. So let's go with the ETG for a moment, because I understand that there's some other tests as well, but let's use the ETG. So the ETG comes back positive, <clears throat> and let's say somebody is a routine social drinker, and so the ETG test comes back at a certain uh, level, and uh, you're saying, whoa, wait a minute, uh, that doesn't necessarily indicate alcohol abuse or impairment. It just simply means the presence of alcohol. And you seem to be saying that a PHP, because it's using that test, doesn't really care what the scientific validity of it is. They're simply saying, oh, positive test for ECG, you must be an alcoholic, and off you go to alcohol rehab. Well, what the PHP does is is they use an ETG or any of these other tests as a uh, basis for referring for further evaluation. So that's the, that's the treatment decision made based on uh, this, these tests. So that's the so hinge the, point there that gets that, you into the That's the, the hinge system. point. So, uh-huh. so if a test is positive, uh, the PHP will uh, say we need more information and we would like to send you to a facility experienced in the assessment and treatment of healthcare professionals. Mm, okay. So then what you're saying here, if I understand that correctly, is that if you have a test that has more false positivity, and by that I mean, it, you know, you're getting a positive result, of course you're going to get a positive result. Uh, even if, if I understand correctly, you can get a positive result even by using hand sanitizer. And so you get a positive result and they go, oops, okay, we're going to send you off just to be sure, just to make sure you're not a roving alcoholic and you're going to harm the public. And we're going to tell the board that you better go or else. And we're going to send you to our our preferred program, our four-day program in Kansas or Georgia or Mississippi or God knows where. Is that is that no, the juice? Correct. It's the sole point in the decision-making process here. Wow. Um, and, and the issue with, uh, you know, for example, at the, at, at the MBTA, uh, this was, it would be shared decision-making. Once a, a positive test was confirmed, the next step would be uh, based on, on a lot of information and a lot of options what to do next. The, uh, the PHPs have, have removed the uh, uh, decision-making process. It's, it's unilateral and, and based on uh, uh, the PHP's decision only. Wow. Um, for example, offering to have a second opinion or get uh, other testing is is not allowed. It's a, a a single dictated decision that the PHP makes. And so the PHP, you're saying, like, let's go back to the MBTA for a moment. The MBTA then says, okay, we got some positive results here. We're going to have driver or conductor X uh, on leave while we try to tease this apart and piece together the clinical thing. What's going on here? Does the person show evidence of impairment? Who reported what? Uh, uh, has there been any other uh, history of this in the past? Uh, let's decide what is going to be the most appropriate intervention to both keep the public safe as well as to get this person treatment if they need it and also to make sure that we honor their rights if they don't have a problem. Is that Correct. Yeah. So then the PHP, what you're saying, if, if again, if I understand this correctly, you're saying, oh, wait a minute, the PHP bypasses that and says, oops, you got a positive uh, ETG. Uh, we don't really care what the clinical history says. We really don't care what other people have observed. Uh, we're basically going to send you to the four-day preferred program, uh, and good luck. Uh, and if you don't go along, we're going to push you to the board as being noncompliant. Is that the gist? Correct. Uh, oh, wow. The difference being uh, uh, 
the typical uh, process would be to send a, a qualified expert individual facility uh, that is able to diagnose uh, substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the patient in this case typically has a choice of the assessment treatment provider as long as they're qualified um, and experts in that area. So, yeah. you know, Massachusetts, the, at the MBTA, they could go to Boston Medical Center, Mass General, McLean, any of these places to a qualified individual as long as they they fit the uh, criteria for the expertise in that area. Right. And then uh, based on that assessment, if they recommended uh, treatment, that would be uh, followed. And, and then it, right. uh, the return to work criteria, mm-hmm. as long as that is met, uh, but there's a, there's a choice. In the so you have so basically the individual who is being pointed at and saying we had that complaint, and we are now justified in sending you for an evaluation. the The individual has the right of choosing, and presuming that's going to be a valid, independent evaluation by an expert in the field who's going to render an opinion about whether or not all of this data comprises the existence of an illness and what should be done about it. Right. Correct. Okay. So then, so what's happening now is that I know from my experience in uh, North Carolina and reading the audit report that there the auditor found that physicians were denied due process and were not able to counter the PHP finding, including the laboratory test, and were then told that they had to go wherever the PHP said or else, because what they say is basically a virtual board order. So you're saying this really is a general trend, this idea of basis of the test being you're going off to the four-day evaluation. Correct. And all information outside of that uh, uh, is, is, is actually excluded. It's discounted. Wow. Um, so this uh, asymmetric discounting of all contradictory or, or information that doesn't uh, fit with with the predetermined hypothesis mm-hmm. uh, is rejected. Right. And uh, the, the problem is the medical boards have accepted PHPs and their affiliates as the only experts uh, that are able to, uh, to give input into these situations. So wow. no matter how qualified uh, the evaluator or how extensive the evaluation is, if it's outside of this system, it's disregarded wholesale. Wow. So, all right, so let me kind of recap here so far the concerns. So one concern I'm hearing is that the test that is being used in the urine to detect the presence of alcohol as metabolites is itself so super sensitive that it would pick up alcohol, just period, and and bottom line here is someone saying uh, that's indicative of a problem, and the test is not meant to say it's indicative of a problem. The test is just simply meant to say that's the presence of alcohol. Correct. Uh, it, it, and then, it has no value in terms of impairment. Because it hasn't really, they, they haven't developed, what do they call it, normative data? That They haven't developed cutoffs. Right. What I'm talking about is that we're not talking about those who are going on benders, uh, binge drinking or that sort of thing. What we're talking about here is that somebody who has social drinking on Saturday and you know, uh, let's say as a regular pattern of social drinking and then on Monday uh, is tested and has positive ETG, that is in no way indicative of either alcohol abuse or impairment or for that matter, necessarily even uh, uh, any significance with regard to the problematic nature of alcohol use. Exactly. Right. I mean, right. if you so look at the relative values of, yeah. of, of yeah. a breathalyzer, a blood alcohol content, yeah. 
um, and the uh, ETG, right. they're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Right. Um, one has high significance, uh, right. the other has absolutely, absolutely right. none, especially right. when you consider that it's not just ingested alcohol that causes a positive ETG. It's been shown to be positive, uh, with routine use of hand sanitizer, um, wow. overripe banana, apple juice, wow. um, any, uh, uh it, as you said, it's an ultra sensitive test. So it, uh, it picks up, uh, any alcohol. It's a minor metabolite that was discovered in the 1950s in, in rabbits. Wow. Um, and it's just part of the uh, metabolic process, but it has no correlation I see. To, uh, clinically to, to impairment. Uh, Nor any validated normative data that could establish range of correct. Correct. Right, okay. Right. That, and, and, and as it's used here in physician health programs, it's a forensic test, not a clinical test. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a forensic test, uh, you're making a decision, uh, legal decisions based on this. So the uh, the sensitivity is high. The specificity is completely unknown. But uh, but in cases of forensic testing, unlike clinical, extremely important um, uh, specificity is extremely important. You know to rule out the risk of diagnosing someone with a condition that they don't have. Right. Um, uh, uh, using one uh, one test especially that's uh um so so you're saying here that okay the test comes back positive we don't even know what the valid uh levels are uh, what they indicate but then you're saying hey wait a minute it may not even be even be related to alcohol consumption at all and yet somebody is sitting there making a decision and using the language oh just to be on the safe side we need to send you off somewhere to get that evaluated at a cost of what do you think a five-day, four-day evaluation might cost? Uh, on average, it's around five thousand dollars. Wow! So, um, so just to get this right. thing uh, uh, clarified. Now, what well, if you in addition, have... in addition to the uh, uh, the person can be immediately pulled out of of practice? Well, wow. on that basis. On that basis, uh, wow. the the PHPs uh, are able to, uh, you know, based on the the concept of this this person is potentially impaired, uh, they can pull them out of practice immediately. Wow. So, Michael, I'm going to pause us here and allow our listeners to take a break, and we're going to pick this up in a subsequent podcast. You're listening to Physician Interrupted. I'm Dr. Kernan Mannion. Till next time, stay well.